HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Pokes Spices. Discover flavorful goodness. Learn more at pokspices.org. All right. So I am home in San Jose, California. And oh my God, it is so quiet. We're going to this plaza that has a Chinese grocery store called Manila Oriental Market. Oh my god, I'm in the snack aisle. The happiest place on earth. There's haichu. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight varieties of haichu. Five flavors of pocky. There's like, oh my god, where is it? There's gummy choco. I used to get these when I was a kid. They're so good. They come in these like cylindrical containers and they're basically like milk chocolate covered fruit gummies. When I was a kid, I used to like get a tube of gummy choco and then I'd be like, oh, if you study for 10 minutes, you can have one gummy choco. It was like my little reward system that I set up for myself. That was our reporter, Alicia Chan, who was visiting home this week and decided to take a brief trip down memory lane with some of her favorite childhood snacks. Different foods can evoke different memories, and food from home often feels like a warm hug. You'll hear more from Alicia in a bit. This week, in celebration of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we dedicate our episode to memory and how it shapes AAPI food experiences. Many of us have probably eaten meals where long after the plate has been cleared, the taste still lingers in our minds. This experience of eating and craving is inherently tied to memory. But we don't just remember food. Food can spark and capture memory as well. For those who have immigrated across countries, food can act as a vessel through which the flavors and stories of their past live on. Today, our episode explores how the smell taste, or story behind a dish or ingredient can inspire art, preserve heritage, and forge connections across cultures and continents. First, we visit a family in the Bay Area to learn about how food has evoked nostalgia for them after immigrating from China. Next, we hear from an educational organization based in Oahu about their mission of promoting environmental preservation. We then head backstage at a one-woman play, where we talk to the playwright about her relationship to food as an Indian American. Finally, 
we flip through the pages of diasporic Vietnamese cookbooks to discover the narratives embedded within. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. In our first story, we travel to the home of Alicia Chan, our producer, who talked to her parents, both of whom immigrated to the U.S. from China in the early 90s. It's a conversation about how food can evoke memories of home, along with a familiar sense of comfort. Like Katie said, this week I'm back home in the Bay Area. This past year, I moved to New York for school, and as liberating as that was, there are also times when I'll really miss home. Not just the shops here, but also the dishes my mom would make. And my dog. Usually when I'm missing home in New York, I'll walk a few blocks to the local Chinese grocery and grab a bag of snacks that'll immediately make me feel better, usually in the form of some sort of jelly or sweet drink. My parents, on the other hand... Hi! Hi. Hello! (laughs) (laughs) They left China in the early 90s and traveled 7,000 miles across the globe to a place where getting authentic Chinese food wasn't as easy as walking a few blocks. So when I landed in uh, Ohio, the first few days, it was a painful experience because I can only go to the student cafeteria, which provided only the American food. It's like um, French fries, burgers, which I never, I never liked, and I never tasted before. So a few, maybe only the first two or three times, it's okay. But after that, it's, it's really not a good experience. It's, it's tasteless. Both my parents came to the States to pursue graduate degrees. My dad grew up in the Hubei province, in a countryside area known for their spicy food. My parents, they cooked the food. Basically, my mom cooked the food with the local spicy ingredients. So those make my tongue my taste, what was the flavor I favored for those flavors? After my parents got a kitchen of their own in the States, they started cooking for themselves, bringing a taste of authentic Chinese food into their small Ohio apartment. But even then, it was difficult to find the right ingredients. Even we cook by ourselves, we, we grocery shopping from the American uh, supermarket. So those veggies are American veggies, and the meat. It's also not tasty as uh, like Chinese meat. And uh, no matter what, we're still doing that way. But occasionally, like a couple of months, and uh, we probably had a chance to drive to Cleveland. The closest Asian supermarket was an hour drive away in Cleveland. And every time they went, they'd stock up on all the condiments and sauces. They also searched their area in Kent for an authentic Chinese restaurant. Uh, And I found those are not good either. Because those are the so-called American Chinese food, meaning it's it's a favoring to the Americans, with a lot of um, sweet, the sugar, and uh, a lot of sauce. I kind of remember the time, right? We we stopped by a first visit in New York, and uh, in New York we have a chance to eat in uh, a Chinese restaurant. That Chinese restaurant is totally not like an Ohio Chinese restaurant. So it's much more tasty. So we feel so amazing. 
and even like uh, like doumiao. Doumiao is bean sprout in Chinese. We don't have it in the Ohio. No way to buy it. But uh, in the New York, what, that restaurant they offered the doumiao, so we feel like so exciting and eat it, and we feel like oh. It's from hometown. The tasty is from hometown. Flash forward almost thirty years, and my parents are now in California. The first time we went to the Chinese supermarket in LA, we feel so exciting because all the most of people, a lot of people, is a Chinese. They speak directly in Chinese. Talking <laughs> yeah, Chinese. Talking in Chinese, and all the food, the veggies, our typical Chinese food and the veggies, make us so exciting. So since then, we we feels like California is the place we should stay. <laughs> and they did stay. My parents have lived in the Bay Area for over twenty years now, surrounded by a plethora of Chinese food and friends, surrounded by things that remind them of home. The food itself, no matter the parents good on the cook, the food is the way they show the love to their kids. In Chinese tradition, right, we're hard to say, "I love you." I miss you, or those kind of things. But、uh, whenever they focus on the food and they they buy the good food for kids and cook the good food for kids, that's actually show their love. Right after the interview, my mom immediately asks me if I want to eat Chinese pancakes. She usually puts peanut butter inside and toasted sesame seeds on the outside. Of course, I responded with,、oh, "Yeah, yeah, I want to try Kobe." Yeah, I don't think there will ever be a time when I say no to that question. Now let's look to Hawaii to hear how origin stories connect land to cultural memory. Cameron Berger has the story. When you think of cultural memory, what comes to mind? Food. Origin stories, a shared connection to place. Throughout Hawaii, these categories converge at a common point: the concept of aloha aina, meaning love of the land, and malama aina. So malama aina basically means to take care of the land, and、uh, in a broader sense, maybe a little bit more in depth.、Uh, for us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. I sat down with Kaimi Naawo Johnson. He's a leader at Papahana Kuaola, a cultural and environmental educational organization based in Oahu. You have culture, and then you have so many different things that make up the culture. Yeah, so native plants, native stories—all of those things—is definitely a part of it. The way Kaimi teaches environmental preservation at Papahana Kuaola has everything to do with Hawaiian origin stories. One of our stories talks about how、uh, the Sky Father Wakia、uh, came together with、uh, Hohokalani, who's she's a goddess of the stars, or basically her abilities was to put stars into the heaven.、Um, but but they came together and they had one baby. The first, or they had two babies, but the first baby was born, stillborn. And what they did was they planted the body of that baby into the ground, and after a period of time, from the burial site, the first taro plant popped up, or the first kalo. And then、uh, they had another child soon after, and 
he was born as the first Hawaiian, the first Kanaka. So it's through this story that we see our relationship between the land and us as a people, that they're brothers, so family, or ohana. I loved the way he put that. The land and its people are brothers. All the different living organisms, all of those things are our gods, or they're different forms of our gods. So a lot of our different gods can take the form of the ulu tree, um, take the form of the kukui tree, the lai, the tili, and you know our gods. They're not some, I guess, intangible entity. They're they're right around us. Yeah, you know, they're outside. They're things that we use to eat, to replenish our strength, our strength, nourish ourselves, that kind of thing. This is a fundamental part of the Malama Aina approach to sustainability at Papahanaukuaola. Your food is not just your food. It's not just the plant that your food comes from. It's sacred. So this tree is not a tree that you just cut down to use for whatever you're going to do. It's a tree that you go and talk to, that you pray to, that you ask permission to go and, uh, you know, do whatever it is you're going to do with it. And then you wait for your answer and then, you know, I guess you, in a sense, you get the blessing of that plant to either make medicine or make uh, food with it or use it to cook, those kind of different things. Every part of the land is multifaceted and deserving of care. Take the taro plant or kalo. Kaimi explained its roots in the origin story we heard just a minute ago. The Kalo plant is both a Hawaiian ancestral figure and a feature of the landscape. It's also well known as the ingredient in poi, a traditional Hawaiian dish. You have the taro plant, and then poi is, it's basically you take the corm of the taro plant, you steam it, you take the skin off, and then you have a stone implement, and you pretty much pound it, kind of like mochi, and you, you make something somewhat similar to mochi and maybe mashed potatoes, I guess. But um, for the native people back in the day, that was part of our, our staple, our staple. And um, it's, it very much is so nowadays, but I feel like a lot of people have lost touch with um, the plant itself. Like people know a lot about poi or just how tasty it is to eat it and everything. But when we have groups come here, they'll ask us, um, oh, can we pull the kalo plant today? Can we pound the kalo plant today? But not realizing that it's not just about eating the food. It's actually about taking care of it to get it to that point where we can eat it. Cultivating these plants is a labor of love, an act driven by Malama Aina. Part of this work includes eradicating and repurposing invasive species. Even though they're invasive to here, what did people use these plants for wherever they're originally from? Gunpowder trees, um, you can use the, the leaves for tea. And then the bark you can use for medicine. So, I mean, not going to be completely narrow-minded and not try that stuff, right? I mean, humans, curiosity is in our nature. That's also part of Kaimi's aim for visitors to Papahanaukuaola, 
that they remain curious about the food they eat, the land they're on, and about their history. We want people to, when they say that they're Hawaiian, we want them to truly know what that is, which is not just announcing it and having no depth to it, but practicing a little bit about the culture, practicing a little bit about the language, practicing a little bit of the mentality, and then all of those things. Returning to Hawaiian origin stories and physically tending to the land allows people to access cultural memory. One story that Kaimi told me summed it up beautifully. The way that Malama Aina encapsulates family, care, nourishment, and love. It's the story of the ulu fruit. There's a story about a family from, you know, ancient Hawaii going about their day. And basically what happened was there's a drought and there's no food for them to eat. And the father, basically what he did was he told his family, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you guys. I'm going to protect you guys. And kind of interesting, uh, what he did was he went outside and he stuck his head into the ground. And then he became the first ulu tree, the first breadfruit tree. So it was his body that became nourishment for not only his family, but for people all over the place. To keep up with Papahana Kuaola online, check out the show notes. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode was brought to you by Poke Spices. The company's founder, Abna Foley, was born in Ghana, West Africa, to a farmer father who taught her how to blend the West African holy trinity of hot peppers, ginger, and onion. She developed Poke Spices to help American consumers discover the flavorful goodness of West Africa through the Poke Spices spicy seasonings. Developed without any MSG, sugar, and preservatives, the award-winning Poke Spices seasonings can be sprinkled here and there to give your meals that extra kick. Learn more at pokspices.org. Welcome back to Meet and 3. For our next story, Kevin Chang Barnum talks to the creator of a one-woman show that looks at narratives around food and memory. When I found out that journalist Bina Raghavendran had written a one-woman play exploring food, memory, and Indian-American identity, I wanted to learn how her work was informed by her own memories of food. I can't remember a time where people like actively were making fun of my food. Um, But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Bina's play, Mira's Kitchen, is about a chef trying to save her restaurant from closure during the pandemic. The idea to focus on food came when she started recording oral histories with members of her family. Through that project, she saw how feeling self-conscious about Indian food can be an intergenerational experience. 
My mom talked about some of her early days as a new immigrant living in California, um, and she would pack her lunch and take it to work. And it's a dish that we call opitu, which is made with rava, which is like, it kind of looks like cream of wheat, but it's like based out of semolina flour. But basically, she would take that to work and her coworkers would make fun of her for it. And, and one day at that job, my mom's boss ordered Mexican food for the whole office except for my mom. And to my mom, her boss was just kind of like, well, hope you have your cream of wheat in the fridge. And that story really moved me when my mom was telling me about it. And later I was recounting it to my partner and I like started to cry. And I think that was the moment that, you know, well, first I knew I like had to do something with it. Writing Mira's Kitchen has given Bina an opportunity to further explore these feelings. But Bina also wants to complicate the narrative regarding shame. Although she adapted her mom's story as part of the play, the show is about more than feeling self-conscious. Mira, the chef in the play, wants to save her restaurant by showing people the beauty and distinctions within Indian cuisine. You can, like, love Indian food and cook it all the time and have your friends over for Indian food parties. But then you can also have these moments that are really painful where, yeah, people are making fun of your lunch and people are excluding you and you like feel this deep shame about it. But like both can also exist in the same conversation. When I talked to Bina, she brought up an article from Eater that resonated with her. In that piece, Author Jaya Saxena points out that not every child with immigrant parents feels ashamed of what's inside their lunchbox. I do think it's important that we like talk about some of these nuances in um, in these stories, at least speaking for myself as a, a child of immigrants. Um, I think that's how we're going to get better and diverse and stronger stories that like hopefully will help with empathy and hopefully will help with like people like me who are like really in this space of like trying to reconcile identity and what it means and kind of who we want to be. As the Eater piece explains, the classic lunchbox story may be true for many people, but its prevalence can also flatten a wide range of experiences. Some people feel shame about the food they bring to school, some people feel pride, and some people feel a mixture of both, alongside countless other emotions. In Mira's kitchen, Mira cooks the dish that Bina's mom's co-workers once made fun of. But in this play, Bina decides the ending. To learn more about Mira's kitchen, you can go to miraskitchen.com. That's M-E-E-R-A-S kitchen.com. The play will be performed virtually in June. Finally, Tao Vi Duong takes us into the world of diasporic Vietnamese cookbooks and how they carry memories between the lines of recipes. These days, I don't find myself eating Vietnamese food often between living away from home, Zoom classes, and piling deadlines, I can really find the will, or time really, to cook the same food my mom would in my own tiny college student kitchen. There are many words that I can use for Vietnamese cuisine. Simple (laughs) and easy are not (laughs) words that I would reach for. Last month, I stumbled on an essay by writer Monique Chung published in a magazine called Diacritics. 
The essay is titled "A Suitcase of Recipes: To Asperg Vietnamese Cookbooks and the Stories They Tell." It explores the various narratives woven into the ingredients, instructions, and introductions of cookbooks by authors of the Vietnamese diaspora. I've always、uh, read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. The piece complements the shelf of cookbooks that Monique had recently helped the diasporic Vietnamese artist network compile for their bookshop site. When I first approached Devan about setting up a cookbook shelf, one of the things that I emphasized was that we should not set any sort of boundaries. On the subject matter or the focus of these cookbooks, and of course, by that I mean these cookbooks could be about Vietnamese American or Vietnamese、um, cuisine, or any other cuisine or any other subject、uh, food related that these authors felt compelled to work with and to engage with. I. Think that an author's identity can shine through and can manifest itself in their work. Monique's aim was to not put boundaries on how these authors process their experiences and memories through food. For many, such memories are entangled with stories of refuge and reconstruction of a life in a new country. In early cookbooks, this theme of displacement was reflected in a covert sense of shame. There was a apologetic tone, apologetic in the sense of, for example, the ingredients that some were exotic and hard to find, or that nuk mam or fish sauce was not pleasant to smell. But there was great assurance that if you would take a chance. <laughs> It is, in fact, delicious. It was very much, you know. Well, if you can't find this stinky fish, you know, sauce, you can substitute with salt or soy sauce. And we all know, we all know, that there is not a substitute. <laughs> there has been a shift from shame to a a claiming. Of Vietnamese cuisine as something that belongs to the author. Personal narratives are now woven often into the、um, Vietnamese diasporic cookbooks that I've seen. It's an effort, it seems, not to necessarily say this cookbook is authentic to some large idea of Vietnamese food. But rather, it's true to the author's experience. So that feels like a a beautiful shift. Food is and has always been a form of memory. For diasporic Vietnamese cooks, cookbooks are an attempt to capture and recreate that memory in a new home. These stories and recipes transcend time and space. To live on in our kitchens, our mouths, our hearts. To learn more about these narratives, 
Check out Monique's essay, as well as the shelf of cookbooks she compiled for Divan, linked in the show notes. Along with this episode, HRN has put together a 20-episode playlist featuring diasporic Asian voices in the food industry. To listen to the many ways AAPI forces have shaped the topography of American gastronomy, click the link in our show notes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Alicia Chan, Cameron Berger, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Tao V. Duong. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.